Well, here we are again. It's that season. It's that season of, of holidays. And um, don't misquote um, you know, the book of Matthew right now when I tell you this, but my wife and I and children have already put up our Christmas tree. It is already decorated for Christmas because my wife does not realize that Thanksgiving comes before it. All right? So it is already decorated on the inside of our house. We didn't want to be the Griswolds and decorate the outside yet, but the inside is done even before the turkey and dressing has been served. But it's that time as well that you're going to start receiving something in the mail. Typically Christmas cards, and we've gone away from the traditional hallmark, you know, Jesus in the nativity um, Christmas card to pictures, to pictures of our families. Even a few weeks ago, my wife got me and my, my daughter and my son all dressed up to look like it was winter, but yet it was like 80 degrees that day. Took us out in the middle of a field and had some random person who we did not know take our pictures. Lots of pictures. But they turned out pretty good. So you're going to start getting these pictures in, in the mail. But and have you ever seen an awkward picture or an awkward family photo? Like maybe one of these, like this one right here. Like what if this is your family? You showed up for family day, you've got some teenage punk kid, and he keeps going, Dad, I'm not going unless I get to wear this, <laughs> right? I mean, this just happens over. <sighs> I mean, how do you explain this? Or, or this one, you know? Um, little Johnny, he's been a bad one. So Johnny and all of our family photos from now on you're going to be known as that kid, the witch. All right? Sons comes to the mail. Imagine getting that one close, day close to Christmas. Or this one. You know, I, I grew up in the late 70s. I was born in the late 70s. But I, that's just really interesting how things change, how things can be awkward. And, and, I typed in on Google Images awkward family photos, and there were a lot more funny ones. They were just highly inappropriate to put on a screen that big for you to look at today. <laughs> All right? <laughs> so I, I, I went to the, the G version of, of these. But families can be extremely awkward. Okay? Some of you have what we call dysfunctional families. And I think it's safe to say that all of us to some degree have dysfunctional families. We've all got that awkward cousin Eddie, all right? We've always got this strange uncle who has cats, which is always weird. Um, you always try to have these conversations with people that are your blood relatives, but you don't really know them. My mom is one of 12 kids. I'm one of 100 grandkids and great-grandkids. I'm sure before my granny died, she did not know who I was, all right? I was a number on a list of a lot of kids. Big family, I don't see them very often, and it's extremely awkward a lot of times to have conversations with blood relatives that you do not know, okay? Families can be extremely awkward. You know, the church is a lot like that. It can be an awkward family can even at times be extremely dysfunctional. And yet, Jesus is going to say something about the church today. He's going to reveal something about his identity. And because who Jesus is, therefore, it also has something to do with the church's identity. See, the church is always true, the true church, the authentic church, the global church, the local church, has something to do with who Jesus is. And any time that we get away from who Jesus is, then we stop functioning and being the people that we are to be. In this first section of Scripture, um, Jesus has been having this long conversation with these Pharisees who have just called Jesus the devil. He's saying that, man, you're doing all of these great and powerful works, but they are from the power of the devil. And Jesus says, your logic does not stand because so do Pharisees cast out demons. Are they doing that by the devil as well? And Jesus goes on to say, if that's good for them to do, then it is also good for me to do. He goes on here in verse 38 to say that the scribes and the Pharisees have come to him. And man, they're asking him this question. They're like, man, we want to see a sign. And I don't know about you, but Jesus is a lot less smart than I am. 
Because I would want to be like, haven't you seen the last year, Captain Obvious? What have I been doing? I've been preaching. I've been teaching. I've been healing the blind. I've gone to lame people and said, hey, get up. And guess what they do? They get up and they go. They walk. Demon-possessed people have come to Jesus or Jesus has gone to them. And he's told those demons to flee. And immediately those demons have fled. He's, He's been joined by people who have lost loved ones, like the centurion's daughter who is dead. She is sick. She is dead. By the time that Jesus get there and he, he just says, man, this, this girl isn't dead. She's, she's just merely asleep. And Jesus summons this dead girl to breathe new oxygen into her lives, into her lungs. Jesus has done a lot of quote-unquote signs, and yet these Pharisees have, have come to them seeking their own sign. See, they're wanting Jesus to do something cosmic. They're wanting Jesus to to turn the sun black or, or to send something from heaven or to peel back the layers of the clouds in the atmosphere to reveal, reveal something heavenly from the cosmos. See, they, they weren't cool with the signs that Jesus was doing. They weren't cool with the healings. They weren't cool with the, 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 the demons being um, cast out of people. They wanted something more. They wanted more and more and more proof. Jesus goes on and says, man, an evil and adulterous generation does those things. I don't know how many conversations that you have with non-Christians. I encourage you to have more. But one of the things that they will often bring up is, is where and what is God doing today? If I just saw a sign, if there was just on my way home a, a talking burning bush, right? Or if I was going out to Barren River Lake and I wanted to get to across to an island that I could grab a stick off a tree, hold it up in the air and say, Let me go across on dry land and for that to happen or for God to come visit with you and sit on your couch and and eat with you. But they're wanting some sort of greater sign than what Jesus is doing. Jesus goes to the Old Testament, doesn't he, to answer this question as he often does in the Gospel of Matthew. And what does he say? But no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is there." So to answer this question about them wanting a sign, they're wanting to see something magnificent and magical from Jesus other than what he has already done, like many of us wanting that extra proof, Jesus said, here is the sign. This is the ultimate sign that will be given to you. As as Jonah the prophet was inside the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, and behold, came, came back to life or was still alive, so will I be. Now, if you don't know anything about the story of Jonah, it's one of my favorite stories in all of the Old Testament. Jonah is this prophet of God. Jonah is commissioned by God to go to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were of a different race. They worshiped many gods. Jonah hates the Ninevites. Get the issue there? I love God. God says to also love your neighbor. Love me, love your neighbor. Jonah hates his neighbors. To scale down that book, those four chapters in a very small way, Jonah is a racist. Jonah does not want God to save the Ninevites. He knows if he shows up there that God is going to work through the preaching and teaching of his word and he is going to save his most hated enemies. And so Jonah gets up with this big idea that he is going to run from God. And so Nineveh is one direction, so he hops on a boat to go to Tarsus, which is in the complete opposite direction. He gets out there on the sea, all of a sudden a great storm. Who sends the storm, the Bible tells us? God sends this massive storm and the boat begins to tear apart. They begin to question and and they're throwing stuff overboard and they begin to question, you know, who has sinned against the gods on this boat? Because they're going to destroy us because of your disobedience. Jonah, I guess with one ounce of courage, says, I'm the guy. 
Yahweh has sent me to the Ninevites, but I am going to Tarsus. I am running from God. I do not want to preach. I do not want those people to be saved. So Jonah says, throw me over. So they pitch Jonah over into the, to the sea. By that time, God sends this great fish. This great fish takes Jonah into its belly, and I do not understand the science of that. I cannot explain that, um, but I believe it to have happened. And so this man is inside of this great fish, and there's all, I love preaching the, the story of Jonah. I just can't go into all of it today. There are all of this imagery of what it was like for Jonah to be in the abyss. It constitutes the same saying that he is dead. He is buried in the sea. And yet in three days, what happens to Jonah? Man, he is upchucked on a beach. And he, and he humbles himself and he goes, well, God's going to kill me if I don't go to Nineveh. So he heads to Nineveh, his arch enemies, the people he is racist against. He hates these people ultimately because of the color of their skin and the gods that they worship. He wants them to go to hell. And so Jonah speaks about five words in his sermon. This is a terrible terrible sermon. All he does is speak, God's going to judge you in about 40 days, turn to him. And he kind of drops the mic, walks away, and that's all the brother said. I mean, he practically probably mumbled it. I mean, he does not want these people to be saved. He does not speak of the kindness of Yahweh. He does not speak of the love of Yahweh. All he says is wrath is coming to you people. Repent. These people know nothing else about God. And yet, what does the Bible tell us in the book of Jonah? They repented. They repented. I, I know maybe you're not a preacher, but that is the most ridiculous story ever. Brother speaks, it's five words, I think, in the Hebrew language. It's eight words to us. And the entire city is converted. They're like getting rid of their gods. They're worshiping Yahweh. They have all of these questions, and there's no one there to tell them the actual truth because the prophet wants nothing to do with them. Exactly what Jonah didn't want to happen, God did. See, ultimately, this is free, not a point. It's not about the preacher. It's about God. He has simply caused us to proclaim the gospel. All right? Hopefully not with the heart of Jonah, but with the heart of God. And so we, we skip ahead to the New Testament. I left out a, a whole bunch there. I encourage you to go read the book of Jonah. It'll take like 30 minutes for you to do that. So Jesus comes to the New Testament, and he refers back to that story, the story of Jonah. Why does he do that? What is the ultimate sign. See, Jonah is plunged into darkness. Jonah is plunged into death. Why? Because of his sin. Because of his sin. God sends Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus is plunged into darkness. Jesus is plunged into death, not because of his own sin, but because of the sins of his people. Yet God shows Jonah grace by giving him new life. And God shows us through Jesus grace because of his life. See, brothers and sisters, if you want to know the ultimate sign, and this is going to seem like foolishness to non-Christians, the ultimate sign that Jesus gives is his resurrection. And if you want to know who God is, if you want to know who Jesus is, you got to know the power of the resurrection. See, the, the resurrection, I'm going to get Easter here in just a moment. The resurrection is what makes us who we are. It is the resurrection of Jesus. It is not merely that he died brutally upon the cross, and not to belittle that at all, but it is the importance of seeing the power of the resurrection, that death has been defeated. The sign that God had a hold of Jonah is after being essentially dead for three days, he is given new life. And Jesus is saying, like that, I have been, I'm going to die. But the sign of who I am, my identity is wrapped up in the power of the resurrection. If no resurrection, Paul tells us that it is the utmost importance 
that we share the resurrection with people. Paul is always talking cross, resurrection, cross, resurrection, cross, resurrection. He goes on in Corinthians to tell us, man, if not the resurrection of Jesus, if he was not risen from the dead, then we are the most pitied of people. That people should feel sorry for us. Jesus looks at those scribes and those Pharisees and says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign. I'm coming back. I'm going to be buried in darkness in the, the sea of the abyss. But I'm going to come back. Listen to this statement. Verse 41. Imagine the scribes and the Pharisees. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The very people who Jonah hated. Okay? And, and I believe that by the end, Jonah repented, turned back to God. That's why we have the book of Jonah that he wrote. Okay? But we see the very people who had been rejecting God in the Old Testament are now the followers of God. And they're going to show up in the last days and they're going to condemn and judge at the great throne or at the great day of judgment. They're going to condemn the very people whom the law and who God had given Jesus. See, God's people had rejected him, but these other people had embraced him. Jesus is changing his thoughts. He is or he is, he is changing the pattern. His kingdom is not of this world. It is very different. He goes on to use an Old Testament um, illustration again. Verse 42, the queen of the south. Again, she was a pagan worshiper. It's believed that she traveled thousands of miles. She heard of this man named King Solomon, that he was the wisest man on the earth. She travels thousands of miles to, to get to the most wise person on the planet. When, when she gets there, she hears about God. She sees the wisdom of Solomon. She hears about God and she converts. So this pagan queen on the, on the judgment day is going to stand up with believers and will help in the judgment and condemnation of those who reject Jesus. Their current enemies will one day be their judges because of Jesus. Jesus, in this statement, in this section of Scripture, man, he's saying, man, he told us a few weeks ago that he's greater than the temple. Jesus is the true and better priest. Jesus tells us here in this passage that he is the true and better prophet. As Jonah came as a racist, Jesus comes for the nations. As, as Jonah comes reluctantly preaching the gospel, Jesus comes boldly preaching the gospel. Jonah is completely reliant on the power of God. Jesus is God, and he shows up, and he is a true and better mouthpiece and messenger of God. Not only is Solomon wise, but Jesus is even more wise than that of Solomon. So do you reject him? Do you continue in this rejection? Or do you embrace him as priest, as prophet, and as king? Brothers and sisters, because he is the greater prophet, priest, and king, that allows us to be able to say this with the utmost confidence, that greater is he who is in me than he who is in this world. Greater is he that is in me. Greater is he. Greater is this Jesus. Greater than the struggle. Greater than the consequences. Greater than the constitution. Greater than this country. The king, the king of glory is in me. He is greater than he that is in this world. You've got to know that this morning. You've got to cling to the identity of the biblical Jesus. Jesus goes on and he says this parable that can be really difficult for us to understand, but he's talking about rejection here. Do not forget this. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out from a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. And it, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put into order. Then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. 
And the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also will it be for this evil generation. What is he talking about? He's talking about a religious system in this story that is trying to get to God apart from the person and work of Jesus. A religious system, a checklist. This system is like a person who is trying to become morally better on their own. See, you don't need Jesus to become a moral person. You are by nature a moral person. It is in your very being. All people on the planet have some sort of scale of what is good and what is bad, what is morally right and what is morally wrong. God put that in your nature. You do not necessarily need God to you know, change your behavior. So this religious system is like a system that, it, 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 okay, it's, it's an attempt to get better. And so what does it do? It, it attempts to clean itself up on its own. And yet when the enemy, when sin, Satan, and death comes back, he comes back full-fledged and pours into this person the rejection of Jesus. Though they've become more religious, the rejection of Jesus will only increase and increase and increase and increase. So Jesus shares that story, and this kind of parable, and it, it begins to set up a system of parables that Jesus is going to speak about. From that story, while he's, he's still speaking here, what does the Bible tell us in verse 46? While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother. And my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And I want you to know, at first glance, if, if you're doing like a lot of people do their quiet times, they're having a rough day, and you kind of open up the Bible, and you do one of these, and you read it, and that's what you call a quiet time, or your fortune cookie of the Bible for that day, your, your biblical horoscope, whatever you want to call it, that you, you pick out that verse. I don't know about you, but Jesus sounds like a jerk. I mean, most of the guys in this room, we kind of have a running under written rule. If at all possible, if you're in a meeting with somebody, it doesn't matter who calls, you should not answer that. Unless it's your wife then you always have permission to answer that call. Why? She's your wife. you got to go home to that. All right? There may be an issue that's going on. All right? So you, you have freedom in that conversation to ignore everyone else unless it's your wife. Then you get to answer it. You don't even have to apologize. Oh, brother, I got you. Mm -mm, you go answer that. You, you need to go answer that. All right? I don't want you to get in trouble. you got to. You know, got to make things good at home, all right? You, you answer that phone call. Jesus is, is sitting there talking to people. All of a sudden, Mother Mary is outside. Hey, I, I need to talk to my boy Jesus. Can you, can you go get Jesus? I'm going to tell you, Joyce Baker shows up on the scene. I'm talking to my mama. That's my mama, right? I love my mama. And I, I think Jesus loves his mama as well. Jesus uncovers something very deep about his identity and our identity through this passage. This is extremely difficult for us to understand and for us to get because it goes against, I believe, our sinful nature in order to do this. See, where is Jesus' biological family when he's teaching this? They're outside. They're outside. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, it says, this is speaking of Jesus, Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. All right? 
So Jesus is preaching. He's teaching. All of a sudden, there's crazy Jesus. I mean, Jesus has got brothers and sisters by now. There is half-brothers, half-sisters. And, and, and Jesus is preaching. He's doing this sort of thing. And, and you kind of get this picture that they, they walk in. They're like, oh, oh, sorry, folks. Sorry. Jesus got out of his cage. And he's a little cuckoo. Sorry. Sorry. He's, he's, he's out of his mind. Come, come on, Jesus. All right. We, we, need to, we need to go over here because Jesus is losing his mind. I mean, they're saying that their brother, the Messiah, is nuts. That he's crazy. Jesus would go on in, in chapter 6 of Mark, and he would say to them, A prophet is not without honor, except where? In his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. Jesus is being rejected by his family. Do they believe that Jesus is probably special to some degree? Yes. They may even believe that Jesus is the Messiah to some degree. But their picture of what the Messiah is supposed to be doing is not what Jesus is doing. So just like we've talked about the Pharisees rejecting this idea of Jesus, so was Jesus' own family. Jesus, yeah, he's the Messiah, but he's supposed to be this warlike king. He's supposed to overthrow the Romans. He's supposed to set up his kingdom on this earth right now to rule and to reign. I don't know if he's God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, it says this, after Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews, feast of the booths, was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Later in John chapter 19, verses 26 through 27, and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, listen to what Jesus says on the cross. He says to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Is that weird for anybody? Jesus is on the cross. Naked, flesh, beaten beyond recognition. Suffocating as he pulls up on those nails to fill his diagram with air one more time. He's in his last statements. He sees his mom who doesn't understand what he's supposed to be doing. He's got multiple brothers and sisters. And yet he looks at the, probably the youngest disciple. He looks at John, whom John calls him the beloved. And, and he looks at him. He doesn't say, James, take care of mama. He doesn't say, Jude, take care of mama. What does he say? No, he, he looks at his disciple and he says, you, you man of God, you who I know that you don't even get what I'm doing up here and what I'm going to do in a few days. You, but I, I have planned out your future. I have orchestrated I, your life. I'm, I know the plans that I have laid out before you. John, I'm the author and the finisher. I know where you're going to end up here. You, you man of God, you may not be there yet, but you, you are going to take care of my mama because Brother James and Jude don't believe I'm the guy. And I tell Laura all the time, I'm like, all right, I realize that if I die within a week, you're probably going to be married. All right? However, <laughs> however, make sure he loves Jesus and raises, because I'm worth a lot more dead than I'm alive. So she's counting down to days. Every time I get a limp, she's like, oh, it could be the big one. All right? <laughs> she's going to die. We're going to roll. All right? Um, so... I just lost my spot. All right, so when, when we look at this, because <laughs> she knows it's true, um, I, I tell her all the time, I'm like, here's the deal, baby. I get it. You pretty, you attractive. I mean, if Laura dies, I've got no hope. All right? When she got married to me, I was skinny. I was in shape. I had a full head of hair. None of those crazy ear hairs that you had to pluck as you get older. None of that stuff. I was do tall, dark, and handsome. Then I got old. 
All right? Lost it all. All right? I ain't got nothing going for me if she dies. She dies. She got a lot going for her. She's still extremely beautiful. She's attractive. She's got a great personality. She's funny. All, all of those sorts of things. And, and yet, we, we see within this, this idea that, man, if, if, if I die, God, give my family, give my wife a godlier man than I am. Give them a godlier daddy than I am. You know, let him be an example for my daughter of the type of man that she needs to be with. Let her let him treat my wife greater because he is such a godly man and because he loves God more than he loves her. That's the kind of man. And Jesus looks from the cross. He looks at his, his brother John, his, this disciple John. He says, man, you take care of mama. You take care of hers, of her. And see, they've not been following Jesus. Man, there is nothing like rejection than feeling rejected by your own family feeling weird around your own family, feeling awkward around your own family. It's tough. It's extremely tough. Jesus is being rejected by his own family. They do not understand his identity. They do not understand his mission. I, I would say, like I said, I, I believe that they believe that he's the Messiah, but they do not believe that he is doing what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. See, they expected a sign. They expected him to do something radical and political and, and with the military and to overtake the Romans. And Jesus is a peasant man walking around, no place to lay his head. He, he, he's you know traveling with these ragamuffin band of brothers who are, are, are fishermen and tax collectors. He's talking to prostitutes. I mean, nobody says, man, that's, man, that's the kind of son I want to have. Needless to say, things have gotten extremely awkward. Jesus is the black sheep of his family. He's the crazy son. See, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you with something. I don't know if this is encouragement. Do you know that a lot of the awkwardness in our biological families is due to the fact that not everyone in them is a follower of Jesus? They're not followers of Jesus. So while there is a blood relationship, there is also this kind of like stiff arm, like we can get close because we're a biological family, but there is a major awkwardness between those of us who are pursuing after Jesus with all of our might, who are, are standing under the word and the authority of God, that when we get around our non-Christian biological family members or cultural Christians in our family, because they're from the South or because they walked an aisle at some point in their life, man, they think that they're good, that you have some sort of conversation conversation is extremely difficult. There's this mutual feeling. They think you're weird. And guess what? We think they're weird. There's this breakdown because there's meant to be something different. I know that there are relatives of mine who think that I'm out of my mind. How many of you ever noticed that you get along better with your biological family who are also believers than those who aren't? I mean, those who are actually pursuing after Jesus. Man, cousins that I don't have a close relationship with, I can see them at Christmas, and man, we'll get into these big theological discussions or talking about Jesus or missions and all these sorts of things, and it's like, man, there is a kinderedness, a connection with those people that you don't have with a non-Christian non or a cultural Christian. Parents, let me remind you of something. A lot of the issues that you and I are having at home with our kids is because your kids aren't Christians. You got to remember that. They're not Christians. Some of them are, okay? But if, if, if your child is yet to profess belief and yet to be saved by Jesus, a lot of the reason why they're acting like that is they're not a Christian. So you got to be gracious and yet firm. See, for a lot of us, our biological families are actually our mission field. 
our friendships. How many of you ever noticed that, man, when you were wild and rebellious, you were really close to other people who were wild and rebellious? But then you became a follower of Jesus. And let's say they didn't. Didn't you naturally drift apart? So now, I'm, my best friends are in this room. The best guy friends that I have are, are in this room. They are a part of Mission Church. Some guys that I used to run with and do some things with, some of my best friends all growing up. Man, it got to a point where, where Jesus saved me, and, and they are yet to be saved. And so the natural progression is, is that, man, it, there, there is kind of a, a dividing line there. Why? Because there is a true and better and deeper family than the biological one that you have been given. See, many of our families are mission fields. Many of our friendships are mission fields. The bond between the authentic believer and the other, another authentic believer through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the blood of Jesus is more important and longer lasting than your biological one. Jesus is stating that right here. He has these relatives. He has these blood relatives. And it's not to be disrespectful. If anything, it's to be the reminder. It's like, yes, we are biological family, but you're now my mission field. But my greater and true and eternal family is those people at Mission Church. Those are my true and authentic family. Why? Because he even says here, those who are a part of this family are who? Those who do the will of my father. That's who is in the family. It doesn't mean that you don't spend time with your biological family. Again, that's your mission field. God has placed you there to not lose hope in them, but to be a light even in your dark situations with many of your family members, even those awkward people that are lost and undone without Jesus, and, and you need to have a conversation with them. And yet, man, it's extremely awkward. Why? Because your biological family. Are those the hardest people to reach? Aren't those the hardest people to call out? Aren't those the hardest people to talk about the gospel? Why? Unless they're Christians. But if they're not, it's extremely difficult. I want to leave you with some hope in this because we're not done in the New Testament, are we? Something happens to Jesus's biological family. In the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 14, it says all these, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So Jesus dies, he's buried, he's resurrected. He begins to show himself. And, and, and as he stands on the hill, he tells his disciples, 120 of them, to go to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit. And what does the book of Acts tell us? Who is amongst those 120? Mary and the brothers of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this, Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, that's Peter, and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the rest of the apostles. Who's James? brother of Jesus. The brother of Jesus. This brother goes from unbelief to belief. Jesus, or James, will tell us in the book of Acts, guess who's, in who's the lead pastor in the church in Jerusalem? James, the brother of Jesus. He goes from unbelief 
He goes from being, yes, biological family, but not a part of God's family to being the, the leader of it. The head pastor above Peter, James, is resting in the place of lead pastor, the brother of Jesus. He goes on to write a letter that we have inside of our New Testament called the book of James. Listen to how James starts this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes from calling him brother to calling him Lord. Jude, another one of Jesus' brothers, also writes a letter in the New Testament called Jude. What is the first verse in the book of Jude? 1. Jude 1.1. 1, 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and of James, his brother. See, brothers and sisters, something happened between unbelief and belief. These outsiders, outsiders become insiders. These outside of the family of God, by the end of the New Testament, guess where they are? They're a part of the family of God. They have been adopted into it. They have been brought into the, this family. They were once orphans seeking the will of their, their father, the devil, the Bible tells us. And yet they've been brought into the fold of God. Jesus even comes and he says, man, there are lots of sheep out there that are yet to be a part of this fold. And yet I've got to bring them in through the power of the gospel. See, something drastically changed in all of history between his family not believing and then them writing some of the New Testament and being the lead pastor of the church in the world, what was it? The sign. They saw the sign. What was the sign? Resurrection. Resurrection. See, if you go to your brother's funeral and three days he shows up at your house, your brother's Jesus. He's the Messiah, he's the Savior. He is to be worshipped. He is no longer just my brother Jesus, my, my crazy you know, cousin Jesus. No, he is God. And what makes him God? The resurrection, the sign. Like Jonah, he was in the body of the earth for three days. And yet Jesus was resurrected on the third day. Somebody is eventually going to see that the power of the resurrection is what drives us. It's the Holy Spirit that summoned Jesus out of that grave. He allowed us to go in to realize that the Savior was not there. And because of that, we live as resurrected Christians. It changes everything. Brothers and sisters, your biological family is important, yes, but as your mission field, if they are not Christians, your church family is your home. It's your home. The people that you covenant to be in, the, the people of God, those who do the will of the Father, are a part of this family. Do not give up sharing the gospel with your biological family, but you need to understand that there's a true and better family, and it is, if you are a part of Mission Church, it is this one. This is a family reunion that takes place every week. It is of great value. Do not forsake the gathering of the assembly, as the Bible tells us to do, and yet there are so many people inside of our world who are claiming to be followers of Jesus, who claim to love Jesus, and yet there's little to no or nominal or lack of, there's a major lack of commitment to the local family to the local church. A few weeks ago, I was volunteering like I do weekly at Hope House. I came across a young man, very nice young man. He was there doing some uh, studying and some support for these guys and their ministry and what they were doing. And of course, immediately, I'm a preacher. I like to talk about Jesus. I go into the Jesus stuff. I started asking questions. Adam's there, Justin's there, several guys standing around as we're having this conversation. And this guy works for a church ministry. He's in the ministry. So at the end of that, I said, because again, I'm pro-Jesus, pro-his family. That means the church. I said, well, sir, I was like, I know that you live in Nashville, all these sorts of things. So who's your church family that you belong to down there? And with a smile on his face, justifying everything that he said, he goes, well, man, I, I'm in ministry all through the week, so I'm not a part of a church. I don't go to church. I want you to know, inside of my heart, 
embody. I mean, I was just like, I don't know this guy, but I want to I punch him in his spiritual throat. I want to be like, what are you talking about? How can you be a part of ministry, claim to be a follower of Jesus, you're pointing people towards Jesus, and yet you are not in covenant with the local body and the local church? Now, I, was, I hope it was refraining. I, I did not say anything. I didn't know not, what to say. I mean, I was dumbfounded at what was coming out of this young mouth. I mean, just smiling about it. Yeah, man, I, I tell you what church is for me is I love to trout fish and I get my fishing pole on Sunday mornings, my wife sleeps in and I go to a trout and I don't want to be around anybody because I'm around Christian people and people all week long. So I just go fishing. That's not church. That's a hobby. All right, it's fun. I enjoy it. But that's not the church. The church is the body of believers. You did not come to church. The church is something that you and I are a part of. And yet people are jumping from place to place to place. They're non-committed. Man, all the planets have to align for you to come and gather here on a Sunday morning. And I believe that Jesus is weeping as he watches people who are claiming to be followers of him and claiming to be a part of this family and are claiming to do the will of their father. And yet they are not. And yet they're not. They're not. what it says. Here's my brother and here's my brothers. Here's my mother and here are my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. One of these days your biological family are going to end but your eternal family in the church in the bride of Christ is going to be eternal. Why? Because of the power of the resurrection has changed everything. It has changed everything. I take this very seriously. We at Mission Church take this idea very seriously. That's why it deeply grieves us when people do not take it seriously. And yet this has become popular American Christianity, hasn't it? You can claim to love Jesus. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Do you love his church? I don't have anything to do with the church. The church is full of hypocrites. You know why? Because there's people like you who are claiming to follow Jesus who have nothing to do with the church. You're not doing the will of my Father. See, we sacrificially give ourselves to my bride. I lay down my life for her. And as one of your pastors, I lay down my life for you. Why? Because of Jesus' identity. He lays down his life for his bride. He lays down his life for his people. He is sacrificially giving of his time, talent, and treasure. He leaves the throne room of heaven to what? To give to his brothers and sisters in God who are doing the will of his Father. Because that is his identity. That is our identity as well. We are brothers. We are sisters. We are mothers. We are fathers in Christ. In Christ. It's the most important relationship that you will ever have is with Jesus, with the church. Take it seriously. So I'll leave you with some questions. Do you know this Jesus? Stop looking for a sign other than the person and work of Jesus. He's come. He did all those signs in the Old Testament. He did a lot of miracles, and not that those things can't still happen. They, I believe that they can. But the ultimate sign of who God is and what he's come to do is found in the personal work of Jesus. Don't ask Jesus to do something more than he's already done. He has done it all. Do you do the will of God? Do you love the church as family? Brothers and sisters, this is, again, I believe, illustrated greatly in the importance of this because we were all once orphans. We were all left uh, alone. We were deserted because of our sin, Satan, and death within our own hearts have separated us from God. And yet, what does God do? God sends his son to adopt his enemies, those foreign to himself, those who have no true mother, no true father, because they are separated from the ultimate God and Father. Today is a special day as we commemorate every year. We try to set aside a Sunday where we 
are reminded, and I think it's just God's sovereignty and providence that today we would talk about such things as God's family on the day that we also join with churches all over the country for Orphan Care Sunday. See, I, I believe that one of the greatest illustrations that we have within the gospel is the concept of adoption. Brothers and sisters, you were without God. You were an orphan. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up and he saves his children. He brings them into right relationship with God the Father. I think that's extremely important. There are hundreds of thousands of little boys and little girls throughout this world who have been abandoned by their biological families. I commend to you that I think it's extremely important that we as a church and the church global begin to see this as something that we need to be taking care of. In James chapter 1, verse 27, it says that a pure and holy religion is one who visits with the, the widow and takes care of the orphan. We should be care, uh, concerned about kids in foster care. We should be care, uh, concerned uh, about orphans as well. This is the picture of the gospel. To take someone into your home that is not your biological child and to treat them and to make them as one of your own. It is the gospel. It is you and I's story. We have some families in our church, and we're going to watch a video, and then I'm going to close this out in this time of service that we're going to pray for. Um, but the Hazels have been involved um, in the adoption of Ben. They've been doing this for six years, and this last year we got to bring Ben home. And Ben, we're glad that you're here, buddy. We've watched you grow up from a long way away. Also think about, even though that they're ill this morning, um, Nora's been sick, and, and Pastor Justin woke up ill this morning as well. The crows are in the process of adopting a little boy from Haiti as well. They're in the waiting process to get mission of worshiping Jesus, making disciples, and multiplying. I want you to understand that this church, this community, this family, has a huge heartbeat to care for the orphan, and to care for foster kids. I implore you, I encourage you to be a part of those things because it illustrates the beauty of the gospel.